My name is Simon. I lead the team that leads the church. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you today. I'm going to be speaking from the Bible. Uh, if you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Jonah chapter 2. If you've got one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 774. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Jonah, which we've called Hope for Rebels. And uh, Jonah's a good story. It's full of, full of hope, full of great principles that we can observe, things that God wants to speak to us about. It's great to know that the children who are uh, upstairs in our children's work today are going through the same stuff, going through the book of Jonah together as well. And uh, they, they are being served, just so you know, so remarkably well. I had the privilege this week of meeting with Louise, who leads our children's work team. And uh, the plans that they go through with the children every week, the, the structure of the morning, all of the elements that they throw in, is so much creativity and skill and brilliance and intention and love. And uh, it's, just, it's just amazing the way they put the whole thing together. The children are being served so well. It's such a, an encouragement. So we are going to be um, going from Jonah chapter 2, page 774. And the title of my message this morning is, Which Way is Up? Which way is up? Now, if you're new to the book of Jonah, it's a book written to tell the story of a prophet from the 8th century BC, a Jewish prophet from Galilee, actually probably from Nazareth even, uh, the same place where Jesus grew up, who God called to warn a great city of impending judgment. And he famously thought, I don't fancy that, and he ran away. And uh, last week, Philip got us off to a fantastic start, showing us that uh, this particular rebel ran, rebels run, he said. Rebels need a storm sometimes, he said, and rebels need a rescuer. And that's what we've seen so far with Jonah. He ran and ran his way straight into a storm. And it took rescue, in this instance, from a very large fish to get him out of his predicament. Now, if you're curious to know how we could believe in such a story. It sounds pretty crazy for a guy to be in the belly of a fish for three days. I would point you back to Philip's talk from last week where he answered that question very helpfully. But really the bottom line is that Jesus himself seemed to be completely convinced that Jonah was a true historical person. He wasn't simply uh, a fictional character. And he's referred to in the book of Second Kings in the Old Testament as a real guy. And uh, you can explore the kind of various ways that science might help explain how something like that can happen. You hear stories of various things that have happened. But ultimately, we're saying that we believe that God can do whatever he wants because he is all-powerful. But I think the key thing is not to get distracted by the fish because really the fish is not the ultimate point of the story of Jonah, as we'll see this morning. So we're going to go from chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, the kind of place of the dead in the Hebrew understanding. And you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said... I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. 
Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for the privilege of coming to your word. We thank you, a God who is active in this world, and nothing can hinder you from saving. Thank you, you're able to reach us, regardless of where we get ourselves to. You are a God who is powerful to save. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us through this story this morning. I pray that you'd help us to recognize the great truths that it contains. Help us to see the folly of turning our backs on you. Help us to embrace the wisdom of humbling ourselves before you, that you may lift us up. Thank you, Lord, that you came down to earth for us. I pray, Lord, would you speak to us now? Would you speak to us in these next moments? Holy Spirit, I ask you, please, will you help each one to hear what you want them to? Pray, speak to us. Help us to hear from your word what you want to say to us. We ask in the name of Jesus. I encourage each of you just to take a a moment to intentionally ask God to speak to you this morning and do your best to open your heart to him. Even if you're not sure where you're at with God, why don't you ask him to speak to you this morning and open your heart. Amen. Amen. I remember an occasion on holiday when I was younger and uh, had the privilege of going to a beach with my brothers and a family and, and some friends of ours and got out into the waters, went out into the slightly deeper waters and it was a fairly rough sea. The waves were coming pretty thick and fast and uh, as a young boy I was quite up for that. I thought this is fun, you can kind of jump with the wave and catch it a little bit, let it carry you in and, and, uh, and then kind of true to my fairly arrogant nature I thought um, yeah I'm fine, I'll just go a bit deeper out if I want to and then I found that a wave kind of just knocked me a bit And then I was just trying to regain my composure when a massive wave just clobbered me, just wiped me out. And uh, I was under the water, just spinning around, tumbling. I'm just thinking, I have no idea which way is up. Uh, Just spinning. I'm thinking, if there's a rock around here, I'm a goner. I could just smash into something. I mean, I was just totally out of control. And for a few very frightening moments, I genuinely thought, I don't know the way up. I'm scared. And gasping for breath, I finally surfaced, managed to get back to the top. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Have you ever been caught under a wave? Have you ever been tumbling around underneath a wave? And if you have, you'll know that that is the burning question. How do I get up? How do I get to the surface? How do I get back up to the top? I think that's a bit of a picture of life, generally. None of us wants to sink. None of us wants to go down. None of us wants for things to get worse. None of us wants to drown, literally or metaphorically. We don't want our lives to be spinning out of control. We want to know what's the way up, what's the way into a better future. We want to know how do, our, how do we better our situations. You know, no one's living with the passion of how can I make my life worse? How can I do that? How can I really accomplish something that will make things worse for me? It's interesting, this last week I had the privilege of going to um, the hustings in North Kingston for the elections and hearing the various different politicians representing different parties and watching the TV debate afterwards. 
And you notice that none of the politicians are saying, vote for me, I will make things worse. Definitely make things worse. Things can only get worse. You know, no, not, no one's going in on that promise. Everyone is hoping to make things better. That's the promise. We will make things better. And we all want our lives to be better. And the Bible says there's nothing wrong with that desire. Nothing wrong with the desire to see things improve. Nothing wrong with our desire for a better life. The problem is, for us, that we often don't know the best way to make things better. We think we do, often, but we don't actually know the best way to make things better. Sometimes we just don't know what is the way up, what is the way into a better life. It's interesting, apparently, when people drown, sometimes it can be the case that they swim desperately, thinking they're swimming upwards, and they're actually swimming downwards. You can be thinking, I'm thinking this is going to get me out, and actually it's making things worse. I came across this story from a book called This Was Your Life. And the guy says this, he says, My friend Mike Waterbury sought to earn his instruments rating. This isn't about swimming, this is about flying. A license permitting him to fly at night or in cloud cover. That's what he was after. His instructor took him several times to train him to trust his instruments rather than in what he could see and feel. He needed to learn to trust what the aeroplane instruments were telling him. Mike wore a hood over his face to prevent him from seeing outside the cockpit. His field of vision was limited to the instrument panel. His instructor said, close your eyes, I'll take the plane up and do some maneuvers. When I turn control over to you, open your eyes, look at your instruments and recover to straight and level flight. The the instructor did a number of climbs, turns and dives and then announced, the plane is yours. Although Mike could not see out of the windows, he felt certain the plane was climbing into the sun. To level it, Mike quickly pushed the stick forward to the horror of the instructor. The plane had actually been descending. When Mike pushed the stick forward, the plane began to nosedive into the ground at a 90-degree angle. Frantically, the instructor grabbed his own stick and pulled it back with all his might, barely pulling the plane back up before it smashed into the ground. Not knowing what was going on, Mike scrambled to get the hood off his head. His instructor, white as a sheet, said to him, don't ever do that again, you'll kill yourself. And I imagine anyone else with him. Pretty dangerous. He thought, oh, I'm I'm going up, so I better push down. And whoa, you know, close, very, very close call. Too often in our lives, we think we know. We think we know, this is the way, this is the way up, I'll just do this. This is the way, this is the way to better my situation. See it with children. They just think, if I can eat all of the sweets in the world, I'll be happy. That's all I need. Just give me more sweets and more Peppa Pig DVDs. And I will be, that's all I need. And they don't know. They don't know what's best for them. You see it with an adolescent, certainly saw it in my life, when it's time to do homework and you think, I know better, really. I know it will be more fun not to do my homework and to go and play football. And then it's less fun when it comes to exam day. And you don't realize. You think, oh, I know best. I know what's going to bring most fun into my life. We see it in young adults or older adults. When people live with this idea that exploring a kind of promiscuous lifestyle, that will bring me pleasure. I just want to experience pleasure. Just let me out there to experience the pleasure that's on offer. Not necessarily realizing that it can lead to such emptiness and heartbreak and dissatisfaction at the end of the road. And a life that can really be ruined and become quite soulless. Or I guess the classic example is really the high of drugs. People think, I want to take a drug that's going to take me high. And then you watch people's lives burn and crash because of a promise that's going to make things better. 
I'm going to take this. It will make me feel better. And actually, it ends up making things so much worse. But it's not just the obvious areas where people can be mistaken. It's not just these kind of things, drugs and sleeping around or whatever. I think we can be fooled into thinking that far more innocent things are the way to improve our lots. If I invest in my career completely, or in financial stability, or if I build a reputation, I want ultimately people's respect, or just a good home and a good family. Now, all these things are good things. But when we pour our lives into thinking, I just want to better this, this will be the answer for me, people get towards the end of their lives and look back and think, well, what was life really all about? Yeah, I've got these various things, but there's still that nagging question, what was I really made for? What's life ultimately about? You can have all of that and still be asking that question. And the difficulty is we're thinking, I want a better way forward. And what what makes it even harder is that we're surrounded by all kinds of different promises coming from all kinds of different angles saying, this is the way into a better life. This is the way. Happiness lies here. Open happiness, Coca-Cola says. There it is. Beautiful. I am... I've always said I wouldn't advertise Coke, and I guess I'm doing it right now. It's a bit of a shame. I, see, I, couldn't, I couldn't live as a Coke salesman because it doesn't do you much good. But there's the promise. It'll open happiness. Or you get you know, happy meals or whatever. Basically, every advert is saying, we know how to make your life better. We know how to lift you up. Every magazine is saying, we'll show you the secrets to a better sex life or a better style of knitting or a better you know, gardening uh, implement or whatever it is, will help you get better. And so you're looking around thinking, well, who do I trust? How am I going to find a better life? Is it maybe through this religion or through this philosophy or through this political ideology or, or just through materialism or investing in more relationships or cultivating a family? How am I going to get better? Where's things gonna, where is the answers to what's going to take me into the better place? And so it becomes difficult because so many different ideas and promises are coming at us. And you have the question, who am I going to trust? Out of all these promises, who am I going to trust knows the way to take me into the better place? And this is Jonah's predicament. See, Jonah is faced with a choice. Am I going to trust God's instruction or am I going to trust myself? God's told me to go a certain way. Should I trust him or should I trust me? And we see he chooses to trust himself, thinking, that will make things better. I'll do, I won't go God's way, I'll go my way. That will make things better. And we see it makes things a lot worse. So first we see the way up is the way down. The way up is the way down. God, interestingly, right at the beginning of the book, comes to Jonah and says, arise, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. It's interesting, God comes to a man and says, arise. I think that that's a good reflection on what God's ways are with people. God doesn't want you crushed into nothing. God wants you to arise. God wants to see his image fully restored in you. He wants, his ambitions for you are far better than yours are for yourself. He wants to see you standing with dignity and wisdom and poise and clarity. There's lovely stuff at the beginning of um, the book of Proverbs, which is just full of wisdom. And it says wisdom will beautify you. It will literally it will improve your life. The wiser you are, the more you learn from God, the more it will actually better your life. Not necessarily make your life easier, but it will bring increasing dignity. 
In fact, those that we see throughout Scripture, those who walk closely with Jesus, those who submit and humble themselves, you see a progression into increasing dignity and confidence and poise and godliness and maturity. You look at Peter when Jesus first found him. Impetuous, impulsive, couldn't be trusted to lead anything at all. You look at him, by the time Jesus is finished with him, he's so noble, he's ready to die for Christ genuinely, and he did. And he's able to instruct others how to live for Christ with such dignity. It's a phenomenal thing. God's ambitions for us are ultimately for us to arise. He's not saying, get down, remember you're nothing. No, God's ambitions for you are to cultivate your life, to see the image of God brought right through you so that you learn to live in obedience to his truth. And that brings great dignity and strength to different people's lives. It's interesting, God's first thing that he says about humans once he's made them is this, let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the the beasts of the field. That's what he says about Adam and Eve. He makes them, he says, let them rule. He doesn't say let them snivel on the ground. He says, no, let them rule. I want them to have the responsibility of governing my creation. It's a tremendously dignified uh, thing to be called into. And so we see, he comes to Jonah and says, Arise, Jonah. And Jonah arises and flees to Nineveh. He arose, got the first bit right, but it kind of arose the wrong way. And off he went in the completely opposite direction to what God had told him to do. Interestingly, he didn't say no. And we rarely do, eh? God's instructions come to us. It's pretty rare for us to say uh, no, actually. What we tend to do is kind of maybe look like we're doing it and then kind of go the other way. We don't often say, no, thanks. We, we just kind of, hmm. It's like my little girl, Lucy. She's going up the stairs. It's time to come downstairs. It's dinner time. Lucy, come downstairs. She just kind of slows down, sits on the stair. You know, now, come downstairs. Well, she's not disobeying. I mean, she's not going upstairs, but she's not coming downstairs in a hurry either. And it's that thing that you kind of like, you know, we, we, we're not always the quickest to respond to God. We rarely say no to him but sometimes we're pretty slow to obey and we drift towards disobedience. I heard someone say delayed obedience is disobedience. And that's, that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? So Jonah's faced with this situation. He's considering his options. He's thinking, well, God's called me to Nineveh. I don't think I really trust him. It looks a bit scary to go there. I might get in trouble. They're not very nice people. And to be honest, God wants me to go and warn them of judgment. and I don't really like them. I'd be quite happy to see them judged, actually. That won't bother me at all. I, I don't care about them. It looks unpleasant. Don't bother. I can't be bothered with the whole thing. So he completely disobeys and goes his own way, thinking, I know what's best. If I go there, that's not what's best. I'm going to go this way. This is the best way. I know what's best. He asserts himself, just like we sometimes can. So God comes to us and says, be truthful. And then we think, well... If I, if I just bend the truth a little bit, I'm going to look a lot better in this situation. I think that's probably best. I think I know best. Or God says, love your colleague at work. That really difficult person. Love them. Love your enemies. Love your spouse. Hopefully they're not the same thing. Love. love every, you know, God instructs us to love the people in our lives. And we think, yeah, but that's really hard. And I think I know what's best for me. I think I'll just avoid it. God's instructions are that we're to love. God says, I want you to be committed to giving. I want you to put me first in your finances. And we think, yeah, but that's a bit risky. And things are a little bit hard at the moment. And I I think I know what's best. 
I think it'd be best if I just hold that off. Phil Moore said that our problem is that we give, uh, he said we're supposed to give first what's right, not give last what's left. That's quite helpful. (laughs) Give first what's right, don't give last what's left. God wants us to trust him in that. And we think, no, I think I know know best. Probably just not to do it. God says, don't gossip. Yeah, but everyone's involved in this conversation. I'm going to look like a real spoon if I don't join in. Uh, I think I know what's best. I think I know what's best. Or God says that the way to be great is to be a servant. But we feel like it doesn't feel very great. I think I'd rather aim for the limelight. God says to us, I want your whole heart. And we think, I think it would be safer if I just hold some of it back. I think I know best. The problem is, it doesn't take us to the best place. Every time we sin, we believe that. Every time we sin, we think, you know what, I think I actually know best. I think I know the the way that's going to go better. God's way looks costly, unpleasant, doesn't look like there's any joy in it, looks hard. This way looks easier, more pleasurable, more fun. I'm going to go this way. Interesting that I just started tripping up as soon as I said that. That's a good illustration right there. You know, I think this way looks much, and then down you go. See, every time we sin, that's what we believe. We think, I know the way up. I know the way out of this. And what we're doing is, nose diving into the ground. And we need God to pull back the stick and get us up. See, we think we know best, but we don't. See, we see it with, with Jonah's story. Where did asserting himself take him? Where did pushing himself up, rising in his own strength, going his own way, take him? Well, it's interesting to see. And I'm just going to refer back to the first chapter. You see in chapter 1, Jonah rose to flee in verse 3. Where does it take him? Next thing, he went down. Arose, it took him down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into the ship. The wind comes, the tempest comes, the storms come, the mariners are calling out, sailors are crying out to their gods, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. I think the author's trying to tell us something. I'll go my way, thank you. He gets lower and lower and lower until eventually a pagan sailor, not a follower of Yahweh, says to him, arise and call out to your God. Perhaps God will save us. And even then he doesn't. Even then he doesn't. And then he ends up being cast into the sea. I mean, how low can you go? How low can you get? Chapter 2, verse 3, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The waves and billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. You can't really get any lower than that. You're talking about when it gets to the very bottom of the ocean. I'll go my way. Yeah, really? It goes down and down and down. Verse 6, I went down (laughs) to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. See, it's fascinating, isn't it? The very moment when he thinks, I don't want to obey God. I'm going to take control and do it my way is the moment that leads him to a point where he literally has no control. And it's exactly what happens with us. When we say, no, 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 I'll I'll do it my way. I'll take control. I want to be in control. That is the moment when you start to lose control, when sin begins to exert its influence. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave of sin. We we get into sinful things, we find, and you go into it thinking, oh, I'm in control, I'll do what I want. Actually, it begins to take 
control. And he ends up going down. I'm just going to show you a little video that I happened to cross literally yesterday evening. This is something that just happened in the news this week. Uh, this is, imagine this. This is about 600 feet under the ocean. Look at that beast. In a minute, you see Jonah just go past. (laughs) Pretty amazing, huh? Thanks so much, guys. Imagine that. See, I was going to show you some pictures from various storybooks of Jonah sitting in the whale like... You know, a nice little smile, and there he is, and the fish is grinning, and it's all like, woo. That looks absolutely terrifying. And imagine what happened to him was in total darkness. I mean, have you, you know, when you go underwater and you open your eyes, and some, I mean, I've done it in like lakes in America. You open your eyes, and you just see this kind of green, murky mist, and you just imagine an alligator coming through it, and then you get out of the water really quick. You know, it's just terrifying being under the water like that. That's where his disobedience took him, to a place where he just had no control, and that would be freezing cold. And then this beast, I just can't imagine really anything more terrifying. It's absolutely awful. This is, the, this is what happens. This is, it's a graphic illustration of what happens to lives when we exalt ourselves and say, I know best. It takes us down into a place where actually you lose control. You're totally victim ultimately, to whatever might be coming across your way. And Jesus said, and I guess you could play this over this whole sermon. Jesus said this, he who exalts himself, he who exalts himself will be humbled. And that's exactly what we see in this story. Jonah exalts himself and he is humbled. And it takes until he reaches the bottom of the ocean with a thud for him to suddenly think, ah, Maybe I should do something about this. It's a fascinating thing. It says in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, and the commentators say it's like he's beginning to lose consciousness. Like maybe one or two of you in this room might be doing. I trust not. You know, you're sinking to the bottom, and he's just beginning to lose consciousness. And it says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Oh, yeah, the Lord. That's a good thing to remember now. And... I prayed. My prayer came to you, into your holy temple. He's sinking down, 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 as far down as you can go. Finally, he's like, ah, remember God. Maybe I should pray. That's interesting. He didn't pray when he was sent by God. And he could have done immediately. God comes to him and says, go to Nineveh. He could have prayed at that point. He could have said, God, to be honest, I don't really want to. That looks scary. I don't like them. They're nasty people. I'd like for you to judge them, to be honest. That's, that's what's in my heart. Can you help me with that? He could have honestly said, God, that's a heavy instruction. I don't want to do that. Help me. And God would have said, yeah, okay. And God would have helped him. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't pray then. He doesn't pray when he's on the ship. He doesn't pray when he's in the storm. He doesn't pray when he's confronted with his rebellion. He doesn't pray even when he's told to by a pagan. 
He doesn't pray instead of being thrown into the sea even. He eventually gets round to praying when he's at the bottom of the ocean. He finally, finally, it takes him to get right to the bottom before finally he humbles himself. He voluntarily gets down, if you like, on his knees. He says, okay, I need help. He finally humbles himself. And we've seen that the way up is the way down, but secondly we see, and there's only two points, so do not fear, that the way down is the way up. He humbles himself before God and in swoops the infamous fish. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He pushed for his way up, it led him down. He finally yields before God, finally bows down, and God takes him up. It takes forever to get him to that moment where he'll say, okay, I humble myself, I need your help. See, Jesus didn't only say, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He also said, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Like I said at the beginning, Jonah, God comes to him and says, arise. God wants to see you exalted. God wants for your life to flourish. He doesn't think that's bad, but he wants us to humble ourselves. And it's when we humble ourselves, he's prepared to exalt us. Ultimately, his ambitions for us, C.S. Lewis said this, he said, what God will do, as you trust in him and as you follow him, and in the process the Bible calls of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, he said, eventually, you will become something, ultimately, that were you to encounter it now, you would be tempted to worship. That's, that's the future God's got for you, beyond the grave, when you're, when you're perfected, when sin is completely flushed out of your life, the image of God is totally restored in you. If you were to see your future believing self, you'd be tempted to worship. God has got such good things for us. He wants us to humble ourselves that we may be exalted. It's interesting, you see illustrations of it in contemporary life. You think about someone like Robert Mugabe. He seems to use all the influence that he has at his disposal to exalt himself. I want power, no one's taking it away from me. If you know, sanctions come, others will pay the consequences of that. I will better my own situation. And you consider he's not a very loved man. You compare him with someone like Mother Teresa, who made her life's ambition, I will serve the lowest of the low. I'll give myself to serving anyone who comes across my path, regardless of how low their situation is. And you think of how loved she was. When we exalt ourselves, it does us no good. When we humble ourselves, that's the way forward. And it's as if Jonah remembers this. It's as if he realizes, oh, I need to humble myself. But it's not just that he remembers that principle. If you humble yourself, you get better. He remembers the Lord. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. He remembers there is a God who saves. There is hope for rebels. That's what he remembers. And we see a number of things about this God in these closing minutes. We find he finds that there is a God who can hear you from anywhere. Isn't it comforting to know that you could be at the very bottom of the ocean and call to God and he can hear you? He can hear you underwater. It's so helpful because often we can sort of think, well, if I was in a good situation, if everything was going right, if I was doing really, really well, then I'd call to God and go, oh, well done, you're doing really well. Of course I'll listen to you. But that's not what the Bible says. Out of the depths, he cried. You could be under pressure, under darkness, under sickness, under frustration, under doubt or debt or any difficulty. You could be struggling with all of the kind of questions that you have and call to God from that and God can hear you. 
That's so good to know. You don't have to get better before you can call to God. You can call to God straight away, right now from wherever you're at. You don't have to get all of your doubts restored and resolved. You don't have to get all of your questions answered. You can call to God wherever you're at and God can hear you. That's a phenomenal truth to be able to live in the good of. And so we find he calls to God from the depths. And we see that this God is a God who can hear us from anywhere. It's also a God who can be called upon even when we are the architects of our own downfall. Even when we're the ones that put ourselves in the mess. If you're anything like me, when you're suffering, yeah, you, you pray, say, God, please get me out of this. I'm sick. But when your suffering is the fruit of your own folly, your own foolishness, I can be a lot slower to turn to God for help. I sort of think, well, I got, I got myself in this mess. Why should I go to God and say, yeah, okay, I disobeyed you. I did the wrong thing. And uh, just like you said, it's got me in a mess. Please help me. That's exactly what's happened with Jonah. And God still hears him. Okay, you can have got yourself in the mess and God can still hear you. This is also a God who is able to save. Unlike the worthless idols, it says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. As the NIV puts it, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. See, he's sinking down to the bottom and, you know, any idol whether it's a literal carved out thing that you worship or whether it's something that you prioritize above God, you know, money or whatever, none of those things are going to get him out of the water. None of them can save. And so we find that he, this is a God who is able to save. Unlike these worthless idols, he can come and he can save. You see, the fact is with the idols, they actually make you sink all the quicker. So I think this thing's going to deliver. Well, actually, it may take you down even faster. He fourthly finds that he's, this is a God who is willing to save even when I've refused him until now. See, if you're genuinely willing to seek God, he's willing to be sought and found. Even if you've been putting it off. See, he could have sought God a lot sooner. And that's so encouraging. I know people who have sort of thought, oh, I just, I've... Just put him off all my life. I just don't think, why, why would he listen? Well, God is willing to listen, even when we've been putting him out of reach. And he's, this is a God also who can reach us in the very depths. He can reach us right at the bottom. And he can reach us because he went down to the very bottom. This is a God who went lower than Jonah. See, Jonah and Jesus are kind of complete opposites, in a way. In many ways, they have a lot of similarities. In many ways, they're completely different. See, Jonah exalts himself, and he ends up having to be humbled down to the very bottom. Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited to his own advantage, but became one of us. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him. See, Jesus, as I've said before, that Philippians 2 thing, it shows him being in very nature God and nothing higher. And he humbles himself, becomes a man. Not only a man, a servant. Not only a servant, one who's willing to go to death. Not only death, but death on a cross. He goes to the lowest points 
He goes to the absolute depths for us. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you've got two prophets from Galilee, Jesus and Jonah. One exalts himself and has to be humbled. One humbles himself to the lowest point imaginable and is exalted above all. One of them deserved shame and one of them deserved glory. One deserved punishment but was rescued. One deserved to be rescued but was punished. Both sank down to the gates of death. But the difference is this. Jonah says this in his prayer. He says, then I am, he said in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. That's what he said at the depths of the ocean. I'm driven away from your sight. I've lost you. But was he? Could God see him? He hadn't gone out of God's sight for a split second. God knew exactly where he was. He knew where a very large fish was as well. God, you know, he, he hadn't abandoned him. But Jesus, on the cross, said, I'm driven from your sight. And he was. On the cross, Jesus went lower than Jonah. On the cross, he's there saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the love that the Father had for him and the endless, eternal bliss of their union, their perfect fellowship and oneness together was ripped apart. And he's cast aside, rejected by God and man, the most rejected specimen in history, hanging on the cross saying, you've driven me from your sight. I, I can't see you anymore. Where have you gone? Where have you gone? It's dark. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I haven't done anything. See, Jonah, he deserved to be forsaken. At the bottom, he's saying, I'm driven from your sight. God says, no, you're not. And sometimes that's where we're at. Think, oh, I've lost God. He can't hear me, he can't see me, nothing seems to change. You haven't lost God for one second. His eye is right on you. Just take sometimes just to call out to him out of our distress, to really cry to him, not just to say nice prayers, but to call to him, call out to him like Jonah did. Cry out to him. You'll find God has had his eye on you the whole time. And then we'd have to learn to trust him. But Jonah was there saying, you've, you've driven me from your sight. No, he hadn't. He deserved to be driven from his sight, but he wasn't. Jesus, on the cross, deserves, he deserves all praise. On the cross, he's saying, you've driven me from your sight, and it was true. You've forsaken me, and he had. So that he didn't need to forsake Jonah and us. Jesus was forsaken so that you don't have to be. That's the amazing reality. Jonah exalted himself, God, Jesus humbled himself. And yet, like Jonah, on the third day, up he burst onto the dry land, into a whole new creation. Or at least a creation that was beginning to be made new. God, God exalted him. So in conclusion, I started by saying, what's the way up? <laughs> How do we get our lives in a better place? Well, Christ and Jonah both show us that the kingdom of God tells us that up is the way down. To exalt ourselves takes us down. To humble ourselves takes us up. I was just joking with one of the guys earlier on. I said, well, my talk, title of my talk today is Which Way Is Up? And he just went, <laughs> I was like, well, actually, you're wrong. <laughs> All right, the way down is the way up. We need to humble ourselves. It says in Proverbs, pride comes before a fall. Humility leads to honor. James chapter 4, God opposes the proud. It gives grace to the humble. How do we do it? 
How do we humble ourselves and benefit from God's saving work? Just a few things to rattle through and then we'll be done. How do we humble ourselves? Well, firstly, we remember the Lord. Jonah says in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Remember. All the way through scripture, again and again, the word remember is used. Hey, remember. Remember what God did for you. Remember that time when you were giddy with delight because of his love for you. Remember it. In Revelation, Jesus says to a church, you, you know, you're doing some good stuff, but you, you've forsaken your first love. You've forgotten to love me with all your heart. And he says to them, remember the height that you've fallen from. And turn back and do the things you did at first. Remember, remember, we need to remember. Genuinely, literally, spend time thinking about those moments when you recognize God saved me. You know, for me, it's taking my mind back to that, that morning when I woke up in a complete pigsty and when I'd been out with these guys getting all messed up with drink and drugs and all of the horrible mess I was in. And that day when God broke into my life and by the end of the day, I'm weeping because I encountered the love of God who says, yeah, I still love you. Yeah, you've ruined your life. I'll love you. I'll pick you back up again. You know, I, I need to remember that. It fills your heart with appreciation. Helps you. Secondly, we pray. My prayer came before you, verse 7. And don't wait as long as Jonah. All right? <laughs> he could have prayed straight away, like I said. It takes him forever to get to the point where he's willing to pray. Don't wait. Pray now. I mean, literally now. In your heart. Call to God. Pray quickly. Don't wait. Pray to him. Be honest with him. Get loud with him if you need to. Be genuinely open before him and pray. Thirdly, let go of vain idols. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Don't put hope in other things. Don't think, well, this is the thing that's going to get me out of this. Don't put your hope in that. It might make you sink quicker. Let go of those things. Trust God. Fourthly, give thanks, even in the fish. All right? Jonah, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. He's in a fish when he says that. So that's a helpful point for us. <laughs> you just sort of think, I cried out to God, he rescued me, he's in the fish, and he's like, wow, thank you. Now, if I was in a fish, I might not be so quick to say thank you. It doesn't sound very much fun to be stuck in a fish's gut. But he's genuinely like, God, thank you. Thank you. He realizes God has saved him. God saved him from drowning to death. You know, being in a fish doesn't sound much fun, but it's better than drowning to death. He knows this is God's saving of me. And sometimes we need to remember that as well. Yeah, we've been saved. And you may think, yeah, but my situation stinks. Well, his stank pretty bad. He's stuck in there and the intestines are just over there. Any minute now, he could be just, you know, (laughs) just washed away. It's not a pleasant situation. But he says, God, I know you've saved me. Thank you. And it's so important. When life is tough, we need to keep thanking God for his goodness to us. And it helps to adjust your perspective. Do not forget his blessings to you. Thank him. Give thanks to him. Fifthly, obey. He says, what I have vowed, I will pay. Get on with what God told you to do in the first place. That's what he does. And sixthly, trust. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he was rejoicing in his salvation in the fish during the three days. Some of you just need to be reminded. Maybe you're in, well, we all are in a sense. It's the three-day period. You put your trust in Jesus, he saved you. And yet life is tough, life stinks, life feels dark and cold and horrible. And we just need to remember, it's just three days. 
just a little period. He'll be gone soon. God will bring you up onto the dry land. But for this period, we can thank God he saved us and trust him. Keep believing in him. And keep remembering, we live in a finite period of time. Paul says these light momentary afflictions. And you look at the afflictions he went through, they were huge. <laughs> he just says, these light momentary afflictions are work, working for us an eternal weight of glory. It's just a period, it's just a short period of time. Just keep going. Just keep trusting. Three days. And I'll be up on the dry lands. One day, this dark life will cough us up onto the beaches of a brand new world. Where there'll be no more storms, and no more tears, and no more shame, and no more fear. And in the middle, we trust him. And if we humble ourselves in the meantime, God will use us, like he's about to use Jonah, to bring his mercy to many, many more people. But first, Jonah had to experience his mercy for himself. And that's what we need to do. Keep on humbling ourselves, receiving the mercy of God. If we can continue as a church to humble ourselves before God, say, yeah, we're going to trust you. We, you know, we know we think we know best sometimes. We're going to say, no, I, I believe you know best. If we keep doing that as a church, we keep believing him together, God will make us a channel of blessing to so many other people who desperately need rescuing. That's what God's ambitions are for Jonah. We'll see by the end of the next chapter. He's gone in, there's hundreds of thousands, well, over 100,000 people. Similar sized city to ours, actually. And their lives are spared because of the mercy of God that's come through this guy who finally starts to understand something about God's goodness and his own foolishness. Let's keep humbling ourselves. Let's trust as we do. God will bring blessing to us and through us to those around us. Okay? Should we just pray? And if I can invite the guys to join me at the front, uh, the band. And we're going to worship in closing. Should we stand? And I'll pray. And we'll have a chance to worship together. Lord, we are sorry for where we know we have that tendency to exalt ourselves. To think we know best. We know the way forward. I know how to do it. I don't need you. I won't go your way. It looks tough. Lord, thank you that you can rescue us even when we get ourselves in such a mess. And we think we know the way up and it takes us down. But thank you, when we're at the very bottom, there's one who went lower still. There's one who went beneath us to rescue us. Who deserved to be in the highest place. And brought us up with him into new life. And Lord, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you that you've got us, Lord. We belong to you. We're in, in the belly of the fish. Those of us who have put our trust in you. Lord, you've saved us. And I pray, help us to celebrate our salvation, even when life is difficult, recognizing I could have been far off, far worse off. Help us to really rejoice in that and trust in you, knowing there is a future day where we'll be in a much better place. God, we just pray, help us trust in you. And I pray for those in this room who don't yet know you, who may not even feel like they are sinking necessarily. God, I pray, help us to heed the warning of Jonah. Things were fine when he said no. Things were all right. He was able to go to sleep on a ship. Everything seemed all right. The storm came though. Oh God, I pray. I pray for those who are in a storm or even feel like they are sinking. Help them to call out to you honestly. Bring your salvation to them quickly. I pray, Lord, for all of us. Help us, Lord, to look to you and trust in you. Help us to humble ourselves, knowing you'll exalt us if we do. Lord, we just praise you that you are a saving God. 
We pray, let this be a humble church. I thank you it is. And I pray for all the more. Help us cultivate that humble spirit that you may exalt us. We don't exalt ourselves. We want you to be the one that does the exalting. So Lord, we look to you for that. For your glory's sake. Lord, we pray Jesus would be exalted in this church and through this church and that many will come to realize and find and receive salvation through what you're doing through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.